have your Bibles, turn with me this morning to the Gospel of John chapter 4. John chapter 4. So we started this series about our four core values. I've been sharing with you that our, our goal, our aim is to help people bring faith to life. And we talk about doing that through four core values, and we're spending time on each of those. We're in our first value. Anybody remember? I know it's two weeks and a lot of cobwebs. Anybody remember this first core value we've been talking about? Worship God personally. That's right. As an individual, as a person, that we can worship God personally, not just through a corporate worship experience, but in our private lives individually. Now, as you came into worship, you looked up here, you may have seen this and thought, what in the world is that? This little uh, deal right here. Now, other than the obvious, it, it's a Ferris wheel. You probably figured that, that part of it out. But this is a Ferris wheel put together by this little thing called Connects. It's kind of a Lego offshoot is what it is. Caleb and his buddy Benjamin put most of it together. And then Caleb and I sat and finished off the wheel and the little chair parts that are here. I set this here today to illustrate our central truth which is this, that the full and abundant life that Jesus promised comes only when we worship God personally as instructed in his word. Let me say it again. The full and abundant life that Jesus promised comes only when we worship God personally as instructed in his word. Do you know how the boys and I put this thing together? We didn't just sit down and start snapping pieces together and come up with this. All right. We used the instructions. We started on page one and we took piece by piece, snapped the pieces together to create sections and then put those sections together page after page, following the instructions to create this. And you know what? It even works. Let me see. Make sure the battery is good here. Look at that. Yeah, that's some impressive craftsmanship right there. Praise the Lord for instructions, is all I can say. But from John chapter 4 this morning, I want you to see the step-by-step instructions that Jesus gave for us to enter into a lifestyle that is characterized by personal worship of God, which will bring about in our lives the result that God desires for all of his children, for all people. And you know what that, that desire is for God, for us, that we would know him And that we would share him with others. That's God's desire for us. That we would know him and that we would share him with others. And God invites us to personally worship him where we engage and then he moves and grows and helps us do these things. And I'll tell you, John 4 is a sermon series in and of itself. It is a fantastic chapter uh, in the Bible, particularly in the Gospel of John. I love the chapter, and I can't go through everything there today, but I want to highlight some key truths that are related to worship. But in order to do that, I need to set the stage, kind of give you the backdrop of what's taking place here. Jesus and his disciples are traveling from Judea to Galilee. And to get there, they go through this region known as Samaria, where the Samaritans lived. Now, devout Jews did not like the Samaritans. As a matter of fact, they hated the Samaritans. 
Now, they, they were Jewish by heritage and by birth and had lived together for many, many years. But at one point, when these outside nations came and conquered the nation of Israel, the people of Samaria intermarried with these people of other races and other nationalities around them. And devout Jews said, you polluted your, your Jewish heritage. You worship their gods and you eat their foods, which are unclean for us. And you basically defiled who you are uh, as faithful, devout Jews. And so they basically disowned them. They wouldn't allow them to come to Jerusalem and worship God and offer sacrifices there in the temple. So the Samaritans still knowing their heritage and who they were and not feeling like uh, they were, they were cast aside and unworthy of God's love created a separate temple. And they worshiped on Mount Gerizim because they could no longer go to Jerusalem and worship with the Jews who were there. And so Jesus and his disciples are traveling through this area and they come to Jacob's well and they stop. And it says that Jesus rested there while the disciples went into town and get food. And it's about the middle of the day, the Bible tells us, and it's the hottest part of the day. And and you know what it's like in the heat of the day. You don't do a whole lot if you can keep from it. So while Jesus is at this well, this woman approaches carrying her water jug. And it was a woman's duty in that day to gather water to take back to her family to drink and to clean with and to cook with and whatever was needed. It was their task, but generally... The women would come in the morning or in the evening during the cooler parts of the day. But this woman comes at midday. And so as she approaches and Jesus is there at the well, he asks her for a drink of water. She would give him a drink. And that was a major no-no for Jesus to do for a number of reasons. One reason is because men didn't speak to women in public, even their wives, husbands and wives would be out. And in that culture, men didn't speak to women in public. But a second reason was because she was a Samaritan. She was a part of this group that had defiled themselves and no devout Jew liked them. And Jesus as a religious leader and a rabbi and a great teacher, a miracle worker, shouldn't want to associate and speak to this Samaritan woman. I mean, it would just be uh, mind-boggling for people to know this is taking place. But beyond that, Jesus asked her for a drink of water. I mean, can you imagine getting a drink of water from a nasty old Samaritan's water jug? I mean, we've got kids, and I remember being a, being a parent and seeing my brother with his kids and some other people, and their children would come and drink, and you get floaties in there. And then they would take and they would drink and I'm going, oh, what are you doing? Well, I've got kids now and I can handle some floaties, okay? So long as it's my kids' floaties, all right? So you deal with that. But, ooh, to think about drinking with Samaritan floaties in your water jug. I mean, it's just disgusting because they were unclean. And and for Jesus to defile himself by touching her water jug or her utensil to drink water of, uh, this is a scandalous situation. Jesus, this well-respected teacher, rabbi, speaking to a Samaritan woman asking her for a drink of water from her water jug and with her utensils. It's a terrible situation in the minds of of devout Jews. And this woman knows what's going on. And so she kind of gently rebukes Jesus for speaking to her and asking for water. Well, then Jesus says to her, if you knew who it was who was asking you for a drink, you would ask him for a drink of living water. And like many people did, she thought in physical terms. So when Jesus said you would ask him for this living water, she thought he was talking about water to drink and to put in your mouth and go to your belly. But Jesus was talking in spiritual terms about eternal life and the precious water and the gift of salvation that he could bring. And so when Jesus said this about giving water, she kind of scoffs at him. Look at verse 11. 
Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and his herds? The interpretation of that, who do you think you are, pal? I mean, how are you going to get water out of this deep well? And do you think your water is better than the water from this well? I mean, our father Jacob gave us this well. He drank from it. His family drank from it. His flocks drank from it. Do you think you're greater than Jacob? This thing has been here for centuries, and you're going to give me water that's better than that? I mean, there's this kind of this, this ridicule, this scoffing that's sort of taking place. But verse 13 says, Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. Now, the word drinks that Jesus used in that sentence to her uh, is in the present active state, giving it a continuous ongoing action. Basically, Jesus was saying this, anyone who drinks, gets a cup and, and drinks water from this well, their thirst will be satisfied, but they will have to come back later and drink again. It's present active. It is a continuous thing that whoever drinks from this water will be thirsty again. It's an ongoing thing. He says, but, in verse 14, and, and this contrast, he said, that's what happens when you drink from this well. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. And the word drinks in that sentence is in the future active tense, indicating that it's a completed action right now, but that it carries forward into the future indefinitely. Forever. So Jesus is saying, whoever drinks the water I give now will not thirst again forever. And so we see this difference of the physical well and this well that Jesus has to offer water from. And he says in the next part of this verse, uh, indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And if you can find the spring, that's what you need. That's the source. That's where water flows. And so Jesus says, when you drink this water, it will become the well uh, that, that flows into and through your life. And so that we would never thirst again. And he says, welling up to eternal life. Again, reminding us, Jesus is speaking in the spiritual eternal terms where she's thinking the physical earthly terms. And the woman here shows us this first biblical step, what the Bible teaches us about the first thing that we must do if we're going to worship God personally. She says in verse 15, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Step one is this. We must thirst. We must yearn or want what we do not have, which is a spiritual connection with God. We must desire and thirst and long for this connection with God. Now, I, I searched and I couldn't come up with and find the origin who first used this phrase, a God-shaped hole. Now, you've probably heard of that phrase, likely, a God-shaped hole. I couldn't find the person that authored it, but I could find the concept of this idea found in Acts chapter 17. The Apostle Paul uh, is in the city of Athens, and he's walking around, and he's looking at all their temples and their false gods and their false idols that they're worshiping. And he sees one that is uh, created for them to worship an unknown God. And Paul says, I'm here to proclaim to you and make known to you what you've been worshiping as 
unknown, that there was this desire within people to worship and they knew there was something or someone up there greater than them. And they just said, we don't know who he is. We just call him an unknown God. Paul said, I'm going to make him known to you today. So this thought of a God-shaped hole is the idea that every human being has an inner void, an emptiness, a hole, if you will, that longs for something that words sometimes cannot even express. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says it this way, God has set eternity in the hearts of men. God has set eternity in the hearts of men. There is something within us that yearns and longs for, even if we can't put it into words, this relationship with God. And unfortunately, people try to fill this void or this hole with all kinds of things of the world. Do they not? Materialism and the pursuits of the flesh and, 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 and power and so many things that we try to fill. But ultimately, those things continue to leave them unfulfilled and dissatisfied. Because that hole can only adequately be filled with this relationship with Jesus Christ. And so this woman expresses this desire and this thirst for fulfillment that only Christ can bring. God wants us, just as she was crying out, God wants us to come to him. I mean, God is the one who places that desire within us in the first place that, that we would seek after. We would long for him. And then God provides everything necessary for us to be able to come to him. He, he draws us to himself, the Bible says, and then he tells us what we must do to be able to enter into a relationship with him. But we must come to God on his terms and in the way that God instructs. You know, we live in a culture that says all roads lead to heaven. That's not what the Bible says. That's not what God teaches. We must come to him as he instructs us. And that brings us to the next step that will, not might, that will happen when you begin to seek after God. You will have to confess and repent of your sins. If you are going to come to God, you will have to confess and repent of your sins. This woman's heart leapt at the thought of receiving this living water. Oh, it sounded so good. And so refreshing that this man spoke of, this, this well bringing up that she would never thirst again. And she thought it was her physical thirst speaking, saying, Sir, can I have this? But really it was her spiritual hunger that was crying out for this living water that Jesus offered. And Jesus is very tactful here. He's always very tactful, but he's straightforward in confronting her sin. He said, go, call your husband, and come back. And then the woman speaks the shortest sentence of their entire conversation. You can almost see her skin begin to pale and her heart sink. Her shoulders begin to sag. And, and this hope that had been kindled within her began to disappear. Suddenly, it was replaced with guilt and shame and possibly even anger to have been offered such hope and to long for this and then to so suddenly have it yanked away as if it was some cruel joke. I have no husband, she replied. That's all she's able to whisper. I have no husband. And it's quite likely that she may have grabbed her jug and she may have started getting water because she wanted to get out of there as quickly as possible. 
You know, that's why she was there in the heat of the day in the first place, to avoid people. Because people knew who she was. They knew her situation, her background, her lifestyle, all that had transpired. And she didn't want to be around people. Because she didn't want to experience the scorn and the shame and the humiliation of being around those who would judge and condemn her. And as she spoke to Jesus and this hope welled up within her and that all of a sudden, he's just like everyone else. He's going to remind me of who I've done or who I am and what I've done and why I can't have this living water that he speaks of. You can just sense this crushing weight that came with Jesus' words of, go call your husband and come back. But before she could pull away and leave his presence... John says, Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Now she had spoken partial truth. She admitted to an element, a part of her sin. But Jesus brought her full sin into the light. Which he will do for all of us. We will be confronted with our own sinfulness in the presence of of God. When we enter into his presence, we recognize who we are and how steeped in sin we are. Because God is holy. They sang the song, holy, holy, holy. We see that in scripture, in Isaiah, in the book of Revelation, and, and in Hebrew language, and they wanted to say something and give it the highest emphasis possible. They would say it three times. And to, so to say that God is holy, holy, holy puts God's holiness above all else. He is holy, he is righteous, he is altogether pure, and he can have nothing to do with sin. And so when people enter into his presence all throughout Scripture, the first thing that they saw was how woefully inadequate, how sinful and unworthy they were to be in the presence of God. You may remember Isaiah chapter 6 when he's in the presence of God. The first thing he says, he cowers and says, Woe to me, I am a man of unclean lips. And all throughout Scripture, when people encountered the presence of God or even God's angels, they cowered in fear because they recognized their sinfulness and they knew that they deserved punishment for their sins and they were afraid being in the very presence of God because we are confronted with our sins. Do you guys need me to elaborate on this? Do we understand our sinfulness? And just how, how deep it is and how utterly hopeless we are to deal with our own sin. Read about a man who went to uh, live in a monastery. And he had been there about three months. And he came to the head monk who was there. And he said, sir, he said, I'm just wondering. He said, how long before these battles with the flesh end? He said, particularly th th this lust that is there. He said, I've been here three months and I still find my mind wandering and having these lustful thoughts. Sir, when is it going to end? When will this battle with the flesh and this battle with lust be over? The head monk paused for a few moments and thought very introspectively. And finally, he looked at the young man and said, son, he said, I don't think I would trust myself until I've been dead about three days. We are going to wrestle with sin. And if we are going to worship God personally as prescribed and as we're instructed to do in Scripture, we are going to have to recognize and deal with our sin because it is a barrier in our relationship with God. But the message of the gospel is good news. So, so here's the thing. Even though we have to confess our sin, and the Bible tells us to repent, which means to turn away and to leave it behind, 
when we do that, we're not stuck in our sin. We're not condemned by that sin because of Jesus Christ and what he did for us on the cross of Calvary. And Jesus, or this woman speaks to Jesus when he, when he talks about this sinfulness. And he draws this to her attention. And then he tells her what she's done. And he knows her situation. And she knows that something's totally different. This man continuing to converse with her, maybe he's still offering her hope. And so this, this hope wells up within her. And she says this, Sir, I can see that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews claim the place we must worship is in Jerusalem. So she's like, you're still offering hope. You didn't just cast me aside and tell me to get out of your presence. You know, you're offering hope. What do I do to get this hope? Is it here on this mountain or is it in the mountain in Jerusalem? Tell me where I got to go to experience this. And like so many of us, she had this understanding of worship that's focused on the external outer trappings instead of the internal heart issue, which is the real place that worship happens. It's where worship takes place in our hearts and in our spirits. And I told you we're calling this series, Extreme, this series Extreme Makeover because I want us to rethink and rebuild our concept of worship into one that is thoroughly biblical. And this woman's response is our response. How do I come to God? What music style ushers in the presence of God? How much money should I give? How many sins can I commit in a week and still stay under my limit? You know, we kind of wrestle, how close to the line can I get before it moves into sin? What good deeds must I do? What must I sacrifice or give up to stay in good standing? And the list goes on and on with all these things that we do, these actions we take. It's the question of salvation. What must I do to be right with God? There's an action. There's got to be something that I can do which helps me grab and grasp or earn or merit to receiving salvation. And there is something we do. She asked this question of Jesus, sir, what must I do? Which place must I go? And Jesus says, I'll tell you which place you should go. Look at the next verse. Verse 21, Jesus declared, believe me. That's it. Where must I go? Which mountain? Jesus said, no, no, no mountain. Believe me. What must I do for salvation? Believe me is what Jesus said. But he goes on and he helps her understanding here and it helps her realize that it's not about these places. It's about him and a relationship with him. He says, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. Well, they didn't know of salvation because it hadn't yet been revealed to them. But here right now, this very second, Jesus is revealing himself as the way of salvation. He says, we worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. Well, it's from the Jews in two ways. One is the Messiah, the Christ, came from the nation of Israel, from the Jewish people. So salvation came from the Jews as a whole, but also Jesus was Jewish. That was his heritage. So he was the source of salvation. He was Jewish, so therefore salvation came from the Jews. And he goes on and he tells her, Yet a time is coming and has now come. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. Jesus redefined worship for her. The place of worship isn't the issue. It never has been. The nature of worship is what God seeks. The nature of our heart 
as we seek after him and present any kind of offering or sacrifice or gift to God? How is our heart in that expression of worship, whatever it is? And the liberating thing is we can express our heart in worship to God anytime, any place. We're not confined to this hour, hour and 15 minutes in this room each and every week, although that's where we lock in on this is worship. Worship is everywhere. It's all the time as our heart in spirit and in truth engages and connects with God. And Jesus said that these things were coming. And he says, and, now, and has now come. But after his death and his resurrection and his ascension back into heaven when he sent the Holy Spirit, we live in this new reality. Woman, the time is coming. Friends, the time is here now. When we worship God through the Holy Spirit and in the truth of God's word. And to me, here's the most incredibly humbling part of this whole thing. Jesus said, these people who worship in spirit and truth are the the true worshipers that God seeks. That's an important word, seeks. God isn't sitting back with his arms crossed going, do whatever you're going to do. Go through your motions, do your little dance, do your little deal, whatever you're going to do, try and impress me. If it's good enough, I'll give you a C, maybe a B, you know, grade you on that. If it's good enough as an act of worship, I'll accept it and receive it from you. But you got to impress me first. It's not about that at all. God seeks. He is looking, longing, wanting to find these people, his children, who are worshiping him in spirit and in truth. I mean, doesn't that just blow you away? That God seeks after You and me, when our hearts are engaging him in spirit and in truth. To worship in spirit means from the heart, the immaterial part of who we are. It's not about external conformity to to ceremony or rituals or, or other outwards or actions or attitudes. True biblical worship comes from the heart in our spirit as our spirit engages with God through the Holy Spirit. And to worship in truth means that that our worship must be consistent with Scripture and centered on Jesus Christ, who is the truth of God's Word and who all of God's Word points to as the central figure in all of history and in salvation. So worship God in truth, the truth of His Word and in Jesus Christ. But I've got to give you a word of caution here. Not everything that's called worship is worship. We need to be very alert to that fact because there are all kinds of cults and false religions and false teachers out there who may engage a person's spirits and their emotions, but they are nowhere near grounded in the truth of God's word. We must be alert. We must be cautious. I sat in a room in seminary during a cults and world religions class and had a man come in and sit in that classroom and look at this room full of bright-eyed seminarians staring at him, telling about his religion. And he told us that part of his religion included having intercourse with members of the opposite sex as a way of evangelism. Hand on a Bible, this man with a straight face is telling us this is an act of evangelism and expression of their worship to God. Their rationale was this. We're supposed to share God's love, they said. And I say that. You've heard me say, yes, we are to share God's love. And one Greek word for the word love is the word eros, which describes a physical, erotic type love. 
Therefore, they saw this act with other individuals as an act of evangelism, even though the word eros is not found in the entire New Testament. Now, for clarity's sake, that is a lie, and it's a sin, all right? No bright ideas from anybody, all right? That is a false lie from the pit of hell. But see, aren't you glad you braved the elements? You can go to, go to work tomorrow and say, man, you're not going to believe what I heard in church yesterday. There's people, they're way out there, you know, in left field. But people will twist and distort things that will absolutely blow your mind. But that's why you hear me stress so often the importance of a steady diet of God's word in your life. Because when you read and you study God's word, the Holy Spirit helps you steer clear of these gross misunderstandings and these false lies and truths that are being proclaimed and taught. Well, this woman's hunger and desire for the spiritual living water increased as she continued to hear that God seeks those who worship in spirit and truth. And she says, I know that Messiah, verse 20, 25, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. She said, the Messiah is coming and always going to give us the truth and the answers we seek. And Jesus said, I who speak to you am he. Now, the NIV here adds the word he on the end of that, but the original Greek, the word he is not there. Jesus, as he does 22 other times in his ministry, calls himself I am. The very name that God had given to Moses when he said, go and deliver my people. And they're going to say, Moses, who sent you? He said, you tell them, I am sent me and they will follow you. Because that is my name. I am. And so Jesus, when she speaks of Messiah, he said, I who speak to you, I am. God is here. Messiah has come. Listen to his message. And what was his message? Believe me. He brought her sin to light. Woman, your sin, your sin is there. But believe me. And you can experience, you can receive this living water, this eternal life that I have brought. In summary, what we've looked at this morning, God places a desire within us to come to him. And as we begin to move on that and the Holy Spirit works and when we take a step to him, we're convicted and we read his word and when we share with someone, the first thing that we recognize as we seek after God is our sinfulness. And we realize there's a problem. We're stuck in our sin. We can go no further. But God says, if you will believe in my son, who came and died as a substitute. He was your sin bearer. He was the atoning sacrifice for your sins. If you will believe in him, which is the third step here, believe in Jesus, then you can be forgiven of those sins. They can be cleansed and washed away and we can become one of God's very own children. And then here's the incredible part about that. As we begin to experience and worship God personally and connect with him, uh, our joy builds and overflows in our lives to the point that, that we share with others. They see the difference in our lives, and then they hunger. They long for what we have. And then they come to us, and we save them, right? No, we don't. We then can share Christ with them so they, too, can come to him to experience the living water that only he can bring. We can't give living water, but we can lead them to the one who can give this gift of living water in their lives. You know what that is? That's evangelism. And it's the first fruit in this woman's life. In John 14, 6, Jesus affirmed this call when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
This woman met Jesus. She believed in him. He radically changed her life at the well. And you know what she does? She goes right back into the city to tell people who she met, what she's done, what he knew about her, that they should come, they should meet him and find out uh, if he really is the Messiah, the one who has come. She was saved and she became one of the first missionaries of Jesus' ministry. It's amazing. A Samaritan woman is a first missionary. It's incredible, this fruit of evangelism that comes from her life. Look at verse 39. It says, Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I did, she said. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. Remember this believing, they became believers in who Jesus was. Verse 42, they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. It's not her testimony, her experience. It's now their experience and what they've come to know about Christ. The question for us this morning, for you this morning, is will you come to God on his terms? If you've never placed your faith in Christ, as I've described this morning, then during our invitation here in just a few moments, we invite you to come and talk with our, our staff. And we'd love to share, share with you from God's word how you can know that your sins are forgiven, that you are one of God's children, and you will experience this living water welling up in your life for now and all of eternity. You can know that assurance, that confidence today. And we invite you to come and receive this gift of salvation that's only made possible through Jesus Christ. He didn't say, I'm a way, I'm a truth, or a life. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one, no one comes to the Father except through him. But for those of us who are believers here this morning, we need to recognize that walking in relationship with God means that we must regularly and consistently seek to live our lives on God's terms. We are not our own. We've been bought at a price, the Bible says. Jesus didn't care about stereotypes, cultural norms, or public opinion. He was going to do his father's work no matter what people said about him, no matter what names they called him. Did you know if you wanted to insult someone in the Jewish culture, you'd call him a Samaritan? It was a bad name. You called somebody a Samaritan, you had been greatly insulted. And Jesus said, I don't care if you see me talking to this Samaritan woman. My father has called me to come and share this message, and I'm going to do it. What is God calling you to do? And are you willing to surrender yourself, lay down your wants, your desires, your fears, your reservations, your uncertainty about the future, and say, Lord, I will do what you've called me to do, no matter what it may cost me. Because I can assure you, what you will gain in return will far outweigh anything you could possibly give up in this lifetime here on earth.